This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 10th, 2022. I'm Strat Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, is China messing with us? And Doug Ford blinks. First, though, let's shout out at always. Let's shout out, as always, our Patreon and our wonderful supporters who are chatting away in our Patreon Slack. Join us at patreon.com slash politicoast. You can join our new channel, the Skynet channel, where we just mock the impending collapse of Twitter and anything else happening on other social medias. Which it's is a good time. Yeah, that that whole saga has been something really uh brings you back to the vibes of like the early Trump admin when like just random stuff would drop out on Twitter and then like everyone would spend the day scrambling to to figure out what the hell it means. So, you know, if you miss, like, 2019 energy, the, the whole unfolding uh, Twitter collapse is something to, to watch. In many ways, it's been not a very busy week politically, because I think all the attention has just been on Twitter and, like, what is happening there. It's every day or even every couple hours, they're changing that sign to be like, it's been zero days since the last embarrassment on this website. But we can mock it in our Slack. So patreon.com slash politicoast. Well, let's start in British Columbia with, there wasn't much this week. The legislature's on break. David Eby's getting ready for his swearing in next week. But Mario Canseco and Research Coal have a poll out that one third of British Columbians would be willing to change the province's name. They've asked this question before uh, the total number who disagree with drop changing the name is 53%. That's down seven points since a poll done last year. The number is actually highest among those 18 to 34, where 50% would support a name change, because this province is really not British anymore, nor is it really tied to the Columbia River, which I guess starts here technically. Yeah, it's uh, one of the major rivers of BC. So yeah, there's, there's something to that. The focus of the poll is should we change it to focus on our Indigenous heritage, though. Um, It's something I'm somewhat sympathetic to, but in terms of like list of advocacy priorities, it's near the bottom. I care about symbolism, but I'm also like not going to change a vote based on it. Yeah, and I I don't see really any politicians or like serious content politicians or like serious contenders for for power in the province grabbing a hold of this issue anytime soon. Uh and interestingly, you know, if you pull up the, the cross tabs on there, the uh, strong disagree is nearly 40% on the change in the name, whereas uh, strong agree is only 13%. So you have like a real kind of intensity gap on there that uh, the top level numbers hide a bit. So between all of that, it's yeah not going to be going anywhere politically anytime soon. They also asked if people would want to change our flag to one that does not feature the Union Jack. 24% of British Columbians 55 and older consented to that versus uh, 30% of 35 to 54s and 43% of 18 to 34s. So 
overall, it's like 30% want to change the flag versus 46% don't. No one's excited. I don't think it's a great flag, but it's I, it's similarly like not a priority for anyone. Yeah, I actually like the flag. I know like the uh, vetological purists aren't a huge fan of it. Uh, it does kind of distort some of the proportions on the Union Jack and so, you know doesn't pass the easy and so uh, simple enough that you can draw a child can draw it from memory criteria for like good flag design. But uh, it's distinctive in a way that like most provincial flags aren't and eh, stands out. I, I actually uh, liked the look of it, even though uh, th- there's things to critique about it. I just find it busy. Like there's a crown over a the busy. Union Jack. There's a sun over waves. There's just a lot going on. I guess it keeps your eyes interested. I guess we'll see in another year what Mario finds if there's any movement on this change. Let's jump into the main story. You pulled this up from Sam Cooper at Global News. China meddling. Headline, Canadian intelligence warned Prime Minister Trudeau that China covertly funded 2019 election candidates' sources. Yeah, so uh, in the story, uh, Cooper's uh, reporting on intelligence briefings uh, provided by CSIS to Cabinet in January of this year. Um, So not contemporaneous with the... uh, alleged meddling, although it's unlikely to have stopped in 2019. Uh, primarily, the report alleges that uh, China clandestinely funded at least 11 candidates in the 2019 federal election, uh, as well as placed agents into offices of MPs in order to influence policy uh, and are conducting uh, broader influence operations uh, related to co-opting former Canadian officials to pre- put pressure on Ottawa uh, on policy grounds, as well as um, amounting aggressive uh, campaigns to uh, punish Canadian politicians uh, who the PRC, uh, People's Republic of China, views as a threat to its interests. Uh, the names of which MPs were allegedly the beneficiaries of these uh, covert funds is not identified, but the report does note that uh, both liberal and conservative uh, candidates were allegedly recipients. The NDP, the Greens, funds. and Bloc being presumably either unimpeachable not or important not important enough to influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess it's easy to have clean hands when uh, nobody actually cares what you think or do. The NDP's notable strong positions on China. The other big aspect in here is that it alleges funds being transferred to a number of candidates, as you say, and it says those went through the office of an Ontario member of provincial parliament. And that person is also not named, which would be rather juicy. I think it's worth noting this is all sources that Sam Cooper has from, it's not clear whether they're um, ministerial sources or CSIS sources, uh, but there are individuals who thought this report was worth leaking, uh, but also thought they might be punished by leaking it. And so they had their names withheld. Uh, it doesn't sound like Cooper saw the reports themselves, just the like secondhand accounts from his source, but there's no reason to believe they're misrepresenting the CSIS reports. 
but I just want to be clear yeah, on the it, like how this news is getting out because I think that is relevant and we can come back to that. Yeah, it's also noteworthy that uh, Trudeau and other f- federal politicians have not denied the uh, the contents of this report uh, and have put out statements uh, saying that, for example, Trudeau said that China's taking aggressive steps to uh, influence Canadian democracy. Uh, and so the general vibe you get from the people who would have seen this firsthand is that the reporting is fairly accurate. But uh, of course, this being a CSIS report, we're not likely to publicly see it. Of course. What else was in there, Scott? Uh, So uh, additionally, it's alleged that uh, China conducts more foreign interference than any other uh, country and that this increased significantly uh, following 2015 when uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping elevated the uh, CCP's uh, united front uh, influence networks abroad. Uh, And it also alleges that in the aftermath of the House vote on declaring the uh, treatment of the Uyghur people a genocide that uh, Chinese intelligence conducted in-depth background uh, research into MPs who voted in favor of the resolution and uh, attempted to uh, influence or damage them politically. Was that resolution not unanimous? So the cabinet right. all stayed home that day um, and... I don't actually have the vote total in front of me, but I don't believe it was a unanimous one. Definitely the government benches were not full. So they, in an attempt to avoid taking a position on it by the cabinet. Right. I just remember it being not like politically controversial in terms of who was voting. The the main controversy was what uh, the cabinet was going to do on it more than uh, how the House voted. No, here it is. This was... From February 2021, this was Michael Chong's motion. Uh, It was 266 in favor, none opposed, and none paired. So there were missing MPs, uh, but everyone who was in the House voted in favor of it. So that's a lot of background research to do for the CCP. Uh, And it's also alleged that um, officials at the consulate in Toronto directed um, at least one federal campaign staffer to uh, control and monitor their uh, candidates' meetings in an effort to prevent meetings with representatives from uh, Taiwan and and other uh, countries, groups that uh, the People's Republic of China uh, disapproves of. I think that's the most substantive allegation in here. Like the funding is bad, and I think that's like this up there as well saying that there's essentially an operative in an MP's office controlling who they can talk to and not uh, other candidates' meetings. It doesn't necessarily... uh, Yeah, it doesn't say an MP, it says a candidate. So we don't know if this person was successful or not in their election, but uh, either way, it is concerning. Yeah. So overall, there's meat in here. What I'm like coming around on my head is, is like, why is this public and in this way? Like it comes out via leaks. There's no real response from the government or opposition when this is leaked because you don't really speak to confidential briefings publicly. Uh, but in the follow-up days, Trudeau and then Christopher Freeland have spoken of the need to take a more aggressive stance on China, which suggests to me it could all be 
coordinated in some way, like an effort to say, all right, Canada's decided, or the Liberal government has decided it wants to change its position on China and be more aggressive. So they start with this leak to kind of emphasize, here are the things we should be concerned about. And then they can justify that, oh, this came out, well, we need to clamp down on this. It doesn't explain why they didn't do anything eight months ago. Yeah, that's kind of my, I, I've less, uh, sorry, this was necessarily a coordinated thing, but uh, that is su- my concern here is that doesn't seem like the government moved particularly quickly on this, uh, which, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, should be setting off alarm bells in Ottawa. And here we are uh, 11 months later, and we're kind of just getting around to, oh, we'll probably see something coming up. Um, Melanie Jolie made a bunch of remarks earlier around um, that the Indo-Pacific strategy that's been in the works for years now, and it's apparently going to be released sometime soonish. Uh, is going to identify China as a increasingly disruptive global power uh, and take some actions around trying to curb uh, foreign influence in Canada. But like this is the sort of thing that um, you know a sovereign country ought to take extremely seriously and move very quickly on when there's evidence of um, this sort of influence operation and underway and the fact that we're just kind of getting around to it now is perhaps a sign that Ottawa is not taking um, national security considerations and sovereignty considerations nearly as seriously uh, as it should, uh, which is concerned because it's, yeah, this is hardly the only uh, policy area that needs work on, but kind of this is a secure country and, a country free of uh, aggressive foreign. That's kind of the foundation upon which everything else is built. And if you don't get that right, it's really hard to necessarily get everything else right, too. I don't want to like play defense for the liberal government here, but this is one of those things that's really hard to judge from the outside, right? National security is generally done pretty behind closed doors. The There's an oversight community, committee for CSIS of parliamentarians, and they operate in secret, although now that's being challenged because apparently parliamentary privilege might prevent them from actually operating in secret. That's an entirely different debate. But the idea is that like they may have known about this since January and have been working on stuff, but you don't want to like announce, oh, here's the laws we're going to change because then those spies are going to start changing their tactics immediately. So, I could see it, you know, being real that they have been working on this and taking it seriously. They just don't talk about it publicly for very legitimate reasons. Uh, Right at the end of the Global News article, they quote a former CSIS analyst, Dennis Molinero, who says, uh, this shows that foreign adversaries understand the legislative loopholes that exist in Canada and are taking full advantage of them. So the clear solution is closing those loopholes, right? And that means drafting new legislation. All of this takes time. And governments don't tend to draft their legislation in public unless it's one that they want a lot of public feedback on, like some of the online stuff that they've done. But this is not the kind of legislation they would take public feedback on. So it might be they're just ramping up to drop a bill later this year, early next year. And now we're starting to hear about it. So it's still in that realm of I don't totally know what to make of this story other than yeah, so stuff has happened. 
I, one thing that was noted is that uh, there was a private member's bill in April of 2021 uh, to bring in a, a foreign influence register. Basically, people who are acting as agents uh, for foreign countries would need to to register. There'd be like this is a policy, uh, a bit of legislation that, for example, the U.S. has had for decades, I think, and it's not uncommon in a lot of countries. Uh, so that there's like clear signs of like who's working on behalf of Canada and who's working or, and who's working on behalf of uh foreign power. And like, it's a private member's bill. It didn't ultimately go anywhere as most private members bill too. But like there, that's an idea that was on the floor of the house uh, a year and a half ago. Like the government could take it, make a few tweaks because yeah, private members probably got something, some minor detail wrong or need some, touching up by the uh, lawyers at justice or whatever, but I basically take that and it's probably like 90% good. And you can just reintroduce it uh, as a government bill shortly thereafter. Like, yeah, government moves slowly, but it doesn't necessarily need to move 11 months later, slowly or year and a half later, slowly. I mean, you said it, it's a private member's bill from a conservative MP. We've seen how governments in this country generally ignore their opposition bills and suggestions in favor of doing whatever they want themselves. Um, so like, I'm still expecting something to come, especially with the additional language from Trudeau and Joe Lee, this uh, broader strategy, I'm sure we'll have something. Although I really, it's, it's in a weird state in global politics where we're calling out China for problems, but not India, where Modi is... <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see. I mean, like, this definitely does mark a bit of a departure. Um, I think we talked about this. I don't know. Feels like last winter, but I can't exactly pin it down on when this was. That uh, apparently one of the early drafts of the Indo-Pacific strategy just didn't mention China at all. Uh, so, like, that's clearly a change in position. Probably one that I think more accurately reflects the uh, the actual geopolitical realities. Uh, of the Indo-Pacific region and Canada's relationship to it. Um, that's yeah. So we'll have to see, this is a country that generally I find that the culture in Ottawa and politics doesn't put as much of an emphasis on, uh, national security and geopolitics as probably warranted. So hopefully this won't be the afterthought that it sometimes is by governments in Ottawa, but, uh, yeah, we'll have to see. And yeah, I'm expecting there'll probably be uh, more in the coming months on this and uh, and other related issues. Speaking of uh, Mel Jolie and uh, the department she runs, there's also uh, reporting this week uh, from uh, National Post around a uh, report from the National Security Intelligence Committee of uh, Parliamentarians. This is uh, one of the committees that uh, gets reviewed uh, classified materials and the government's operation. It basically uh, blasts Global Affairs Canada for um, very weak uh, governance and handling around uh, security intelligence issues, um, notably that... Uh, the department doesn't have uh, regular formalized reporting procedures for 
to keep the Minister of Foreign Affairs apprised on a wide range of national security intelligence activities, associated risks, as well as that there's no um, kind of standard and ongoing uh, coordination between uh, the Department of National Defense and Global Affairs Canada on their activities. Uh, it's done on a kind of an ad hoc basis, which you know, doesn't sound great. Um, so this was a, an all-party committee. The, the chair um, is uh, Liberal MP David McGinty. Um, and it sounds like the all-party consensus is pretty clear that uh, global affairs needs some pretty serious internal reworks when it comes to uh, national security and intelligence uh, work within the department. Uh, so another thing to uh, keep an eye on kind of related to the other items we were talking about and, you know, not the first time that sounds like there's uh, communications breakdowns within um, global affairs. I think we talked about this in the spring when uh, deputy minister went to uh, an event at the Russian embassy shortly after the invasion of uh, Ukraine and where there where the subsequent reporting was basically that either the minister's office didn't know, or there was not effective communication between the minister and the, uh, the senior uh, civil servants who were once a attending and, and be handling some of the activities around that. So just overall seems like global affairs needs some pretty serious internal rework on that. Listen, so, uh, all they want to do is go sip champagne and eat caviar with the other diplomats and talk about the new world order and that kind of stuff. How dare you, Scott? <laughs> Suggest it be any more <laughs> than that. <laughs> I mock, but I kind of think that actually is the culture of GAC. It's just to you know rub shoulders with all of your foreign counterparts. Yeah, there, there's probably a certain amount of that, and I, I kind of get that on one level. But also, like on the other, you know, the, there is yeah, serious work that is done there, and that probably should not be the. Uh, the only effort uh, that is there is the uh, the rubbing shoulders with uh, your counterparts, regardless of the uh, the geopolitics of the uh, the times. Next, let's come back to Ontario for an update on the strike that didn't happen. The general strike was averted. Over the past weekend, we were hearing rumors that the unions across Ontario's public and private sectors were starting to line up behind QP and really getting ready for a like full province-wide general strike of a lot of sectors by November 14th. QP was set to have a press conference on Monday morning and Ford preempted them by coming on stage and saying, you know what, he's seen some of the error of his ways. He'll repeal Bill 28 if QP immediately goes back to work. That kind of generates some headlines for half an hour. QP comes back and says, put it in writing, which honestly means nothing because a bill like a, an MOU is not going to overrule the legislative autonomy of a parliament, but I'm glad they wanted it in writing. And then QP comes forward and says, okay, we're going to go back to the bargaining table. They're going to repeal their awful bill and we'll go forward like that. But we are still in a legal strike position, so we will do that if we need to. What was most notable is at QP's press conference, they had the most like heads of unions that have ever been in one room agreeing on something in a long time. 
Like these are, there were unions that backed forward in the election up there. Some of the construction trade unions, there was a lot of large public sector unions. Unifor was up there. Just people that don't generally get along for various reasons came together and said, we're not going to stand for this. Um, It also came out that Ford had upped his offer in the bill he had put forward. They were going to offer two and a half percent raises to everyone, uh, especially at the low or two and a half and one and a half percent, depending on your salary. And now they're offering three and a half for those who make under forty three thousand and two percent per year for those making over for the next three years, which is still quite a bit down from what QP's initial ask was. And then even their revised ask from last weekend. But overall, it seems like the crisis has been averted. Ford has backed away from the uh, Labor Relations Board trying to get the strike declared illegal. And on Monday, when the Ontario legislature resumes, presumably all parties will grant unanimous consent to repealing Bill 28 immediately. Yeah, I can't see the uh, Ontario NDP or Liberals balking at that. So yeah, it'll probably... Oh yeah, they have a green... Yeah. Well, the, um, under, the NDP in Ontario was even calling for the legislature to be recalled this week to do this quickly because they did extend sittings to push through Bill 28. So you think they could call it back to take it away, but Ford didn't want to do that. So it's still technically illegal for them to go on strike. But it's kind of an interesting end because it was like one of the like nuclear op, you know, options on both sides with the province going full you how dare you even consider doing this and then the unions going to well we're going to do a general strike and then they both kind of just walked away peacefully not really getting much out of it the unions get a little bit better offer and they can keep arguing for more uh ford gets his economy not being shut down yeah it uh in some ways just kind of resets things to uh the start of the month where uh where, yeah, both parties are at the bargaining table. No one's on strike. No one's legislating a, a contract. So, like, it's, yeah, probably changed the bargaining space very slightly. I mean, we're talking like 0.1 or 1.5% change from uh, kind of where Ford was offering before. But, like, yeah, it was uh, a lot of fire and fury for uh, not a not a huge amount changed at the end of the day. We'll, we'll have to see where it goes um, because you know, this is just bringing people back to the bargaining table. It doesn't actually resolve the uh, underlying uh, contract dispute at yeah, there's this time. Kind of two interesting angles that I'm thinking about from here. Number one is like, did QP make the right call? And there's no correct answer to that. I think there's a good, debate among leftists on passage and i'll throw a link to that in the show notes and david mosscroft as well had a position that he thinks they did make the right call in the end and i'll put that in the show notes as well i think once ford had put the option of hey if the the strike gets called off we'll uh we'll pull back the bill it uh i think it became the case where the the ball was in kubi's court to the extent that if they had not taken up that offer uh the public perception probably would have shifted towards them being the unreasonable ones so strategically i they probably did make the right call uh at least from political in the short term uh i would agree the broader question is like and it comes down to more of a philosophy on 
where you stand on how militant labor should be and how much they should fight. And there are definitely times they need to fight. Um, Long term, like what precedence is this setting is kind of the other angle that I'm thinking about is, you know, this, this was a use of the notwithstanding clause, but it might, it's probably now not going to be the last time from the union's perspective. And maybe it would have been better to see Ford preemptively withdraw his bill rather than just promise to. Um, also, the deals he's offering aren't that strong. Maybe a broader general strike would have brought more to the table from that. It's tough, though, because a lot of general strikes don't. I tried looking up the history, and it's complicated. Like The Winnipeg strike in 1919 didn't go well for them in the short term. The RCMP came and cracked heads, notably. But the long-term effects on labor relations was a win for workers. Over it just took a while to build off of that. On this in this instance, it was weird because it was one of the few times when they were in strike position and had a, a surprisingly strong amount of public support. Like usually, strikes aren't that popular because people don't like let their lives being disrupted. But in this case, they were putting the blame on Ford. Now, maybe that would have changed. We can't. We can only speculate. Um, but they gave up an opportunity here. Yeah, it's. I mean, this is all speculation. But like, yeah, it. There's definitely a scenario where people would have supported it in theory, but you know, a week in when basically half of Ontario is shut down, that could uh, easily flip back to. Just goddamn! I just want my life to go back to normal. Could like the stuff be open, please? Uh, and I don't know, particularly after the uh, the last couple of years of disruption, I can see that being a very high risk play where um, the the public may have a shorter amount of patience than it's necessarily revealed from like top line support numbers uh, once the uh, the reality actually sets in. But uh, ah, it's all speculation. There's no way to yeah. test that. I mean, QP definitely had momentum. And if they try to go back to a strike now, it'll be tougher to gain that public support again, in many ways. But again, it might have burnt up quickly. The other thing that might have been in the back of their minds and leaderships was, could they actually do it? Like, would they actually be able to accomplish a general strike? Because one of the rumors I heard is that all of the locals of all of these different unions, because they each have their own democratic processes, but they would need strike votes across the board, down every local, to endorse like a wildly illegal action. And in a leadership position like that, saying, hey, we're all going to do something super illegal, uh, we can't really protect you, but we think it's the right thing to do, is a bit of a hard sell. Like Sometimes I think it is a sell you have to make, but if they were worried about turnout, about percentages in that, it might have been, you know, reason enough to take not the best deal, but something that at least gives them a way to back down without losing face. Yeah, it's a pretty serious coordination problem to actually get one of those things going. So, yeah, it's entirely possible that they just didn't think they had the uh, organizational or kind of political uh capital to actually but just closing this off i mean what this does set up is all of those union heads who i mentioned don't talk to each other enough talk to each other this time and that does set up a precedent for going forward the next time a government tries to go too hard they'll be 
they'll have a better foundation to start building it on. And kind of like how after World War One and the disruptions that led to, we saw a lot of labor strife. I think we're still in the midst of that era revised. And this probably isn't going to be the last time we're in this kind of position nationally. Um, I guess it's just credit to the BCNDP that they got all the deals done here. So it's unlikely to be uh, in our backyard. Yeah, it's also uh, just worth flagging that uh, the this QP contract was kind of the first in a series of uh, contract negotiations the Ontario government is going to have to do. So, yeah, there's like the teachers coming up. I think there's a couple other ones that I'm blanking on at the moment. But basically, like a whole bunch of uh, Ontario government co- uh, labor contracts are coming up over the next uh, like 18 months or so. Uh, and that's been part of their theory of why people think that uh, Ford took such a hard line here was to kind of um, establish a tough line ahead of the subsequent uh, negotiations and come in with a strong position. But you know, after all this, that potentially indicates they're in for a pretty rocky time going forward. Uh, fun days. But yeah, I mean, the QP workers in this were some of the lowest paid education workers. And so they gender engendered a decent amount of sympathy from that point as well. It's hard to say that someone making, you know, 30 under $43,000, but still having to do like full-time difficult work in schools doesn't deserve more, especially with inflation, what it is. Um, maybe it'll be different when you have teachers who are making in the high five figures, sometimes, approaching six. I don't quite know the Ontario teacher scales. And also, teachers unions get so much hate. But all right, you got a majority government, Doug, don't abuse it too much more. The only other point I'll add on this is that uh, the notwithstanding clause got a lot of attention and kind of the thing that uh, I think drew, you know, the national attention on this. After all of this, I, I don't think we're any closer to actually coming to kind of a a new set of norms new position what whatever on the not on the use of the notwithstanding clause compared to like three weeks ago so that also kind of remains a bit of a a constitutional live wire that we'll have to keep an eye out for uh in the future and it's just yeah i i don't have any idea where that's going to go but uh going to be interesting to watch because I, I don't think this fundamentally changed it but like they'll probably be like slightly more uh resistant to using it but it, it's just going to be really hard to say but like i don't think this firmly like changed the trajectory that uh, i think it normalized it a little bit more it didn't make it so anyone can use it anytime whenever they're feeling inconvenienced but it was a reminder that it exists and if you really want to try you can use it it also showed that there is a way to defeat and oppose laws that you don't like, which is just to threaten to vagrantly disobey them. Like democracy has a set of rules of law and like we weren't going to win in the courts. But by threatening a general strike, the province blinked. It it, it got resolved in the political domain, not not the the legal one, which uh, is noteworthy. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily uh, indicate how things will shape up going forward. 
Well, switching over to uh, a couple quick takes to round out the uh, show. Uh, Christopher Freeland's been in the news a little bit over the past week. Uh, first off, uh, there's a report out of the New York Times that uh, she is under consideration and possibly has a decent amount of support in Washington uh, for the NATO Secretary General position. Uh, this is the political head of NATO. So you have your um, your military head that's typically been an American general, but I believe is it's loosely been an American general or admiral. Um, and then there's a political head. I honestly have no idea what to make of this because it strikes me as unlikely that the position would go to a Canadian because typically it's gone to a European. It's kind of a, a balance. You know, the American is always a Supreme uh, Allied Commander Europe, the the military head of the organization. And to balance that out, it's rotated between a bunch of Europeans uh, on who gets to be the political head at the Secretary General position. It would strike me as unbalancing things significantly to have two North Americans as the uh, the head of the two of each side of the the organization, so to speak. So, really, kind of curious as to like why this happened and why there's apparently an appetite for that in Washington, particularly in a moment where European security is probably in a spotlight in a way it hasn't been since uh, the end of the Cold War. The New York Times piece actually has a lot of interesting analysis as well. That like the U.S is keen on Freeland and Canada obviously would be. Uh, but there are other complicating factors because there are a large number of European countries in there. There are European Union elections coming up. Uh, Miss uh, Jan Stoltenberg's term could be extended by another year, pushing things further into the future. Uh, countries like France and Germany may want to consider less hostile relations with Russia post Ukraine war whenever that happens, and they might not want to put in someone who's probably seen to be more of a hawk on that issue in particular. Uh, so it's interesting that this is all being floated around and really have no clue where, if anywhere, it will go. But it's also just quite wild that, like a year or two ago, we were talking about Freeland's inevitable takeover of the Liberal Party once Justin Trudeau got bored. And now, uh, now she might go to NATO. And now we might shoo her away. Well, yeah, because I think the chances that Freeland does become the next liberal leader are fairly low at this point, and the possibility of becoming uh, the next prime minister in an elected fashion, like, okay, one thing to take over a party that's in power uh, after the leader uh steps down but like i don't know i'm I'm having increasing trouble picturing the prospect of freeland winning a general election uh as and, liberal leader. and so i think that draws us into the other reason she was in the news this week and that was a video posted by inkless pw who is not owned by paul wells anymore but someone stole the handle after he left twitter of krista freeland telling people to quit disney plus like her family did to make ends meet. And I watched it and I was like, this feels faked. This feels like someone dubbed over her because this is such a stupid comment. Um, 
right? It it felt seriously fake when you watched it, didn't it? I, I didn't think it was fake. Like, it doesn't, like, it's a bad comment. Like, a good politician wouldn't have said that. But, you know, not everyone is a good politician, and it doesn't... And so, well, so the the context was missing. The context doesn't save it, let's be clear. The context was a longer interview with the West Block, uh, where... She was talking about the need of the federal government to save another $6 billion before the budget and find that discount. And so she was talking about how in her own life, she used this approach to cut costs of, you know, saving $14 a month on Disney Plus. And I think she got the price of it wrong, but that's like the most trivial thing in there. We all forget those exact numbers, but just like the out of touchness, it's the avocado toast if you stop buying your avocado toast, Scott, you could own a home kind of comment. <laughs> yeah, it has a very similar energy here. And, you know, there's a like, clearly she was trying to be relatable to people, but like just did not nail the landing at all on it. And it's not the first time this has happened. And uh, like, I want to like Freeland, like she's by all accounts, a, very effective minister has generally ran her uh the department she's been put in charge of fairly well has gotten results on a whole bunch of things so like, is a good person to have in government but like there's a skill to politics that isn't necessarily the same skill as running a, a government and that's where like I think she has fallen down on more than one occasion. This just being probably the most obvious example of that. Um, Cause like, it's one thing to try and do like the uh, person of the people thing, but you know, deputy prime minister uh, lives in one of the uh, like most expensive writings in the country. Like, they're, they're, I just like, she is not going to be able to convince people uh, that she's just like a typical everyday Canadian. So like, that's probably not the way to go. And like a steel politician would be able to like work around. That. Even just among streaming services, like Disney plus, even just among streaming services, Disney plus is probably the most value you can get compared to Netflix, where I barely watch anything these days. Crave has some, has the Star Trek, but uh, Disney plus you got Marvel, you got Star Wars, you got all your classics. Yeah, this podcast brought to you by Disney Plus. Use the confirmation bonus code. We don't have a promo code yet. Damn it. <laughs> um, but yeah, also like, you know, groceries have gone up by more than the cost of a Disney Plus account. And at some point, like people want to see the government doing something about that. And like, I, I will be the first one to talk about the benefits of budgeting and like, um discipline when it comes to personal finances um kind of unnecessary expenses and whatnot but uh there's a difference between knowing that's good personal advice and thinking that's a necessarily a good message to be sending out uh as a government dealing in tough economic times and really the like we've got your back messaging that uh the liberals have successfully used in the past conveys that a lot better and yeah it just becomes a tough so like it's circling back to kind of like what does this mean for uh, a post justin trudeau liberal party Mis mistakes like this i think 
pr point to Freeland probably not having necessarily the kind of political skill to to run a general election as the standard bearer for the party. Um, and from the sounds of it, that's I think there's starting to be a recognition of that in in Ottawa, which probably puts the chances that she'll cruise to be the next liberal leader significantly lower. Um, it's not too bad. Like, like I said, I, I think she's a good minister, but uh, it's I think it's becoming increasingly clear that maybe she doesn't have the this political Indeed. skills to do the other part of the job of prime minister. Turning over to COVID, we haven't talked about that in quite a while, and it seems like politicians are want to forget about it. Uh, but Dr. Theresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, is out with renewed advice to put your masks back on and use multiple layers of personal protection to help reduce the surge of influenza, RSV, COVID-19, all the colds and everything else we're all suffering from right now. Uh, Cause it's bad. Children's hospitals are full. <laughs> Heart surgeries are being canceled. Like it's bad out there. Please yeah, there's probably a Tylenol wear your masks, get your vaccines. The data on how many people have their boosters is really depressing, especially among the youngest. My kids have two shots each. My family, my wife and I have four shots. Get it. I'm getting my fourth one weekend. in like an hour's time. You're going to have a fun uh, weekend. No, my fourth wasn't that bad. But yeah, it's... Uh, pardon? I got them together, but yeah. Well, I'm also getting the flu shot at the same time. So like, I, I'm expecting that tomorrow might be a bit of a write-off. Uh, but uh, we will just have to see how that goes. But yeah, like get, get your shots. The less than 15% having a second booster, that, that's just not good. And yeah, that like, I don't know. It seems like that ought to be the the easier thing or like the thing to really kind of drive home. Especially just like when I do see people out there wearing masks, there's a lot of people still wearing cloth masks for some reason. What now that even though like N95s are generally pretty available, so like there's clearly kind of a gap between what the best practices are to reduce transmission, kind of like what's happening out there. Uh, I mean, I'll take everyone wearing cloth masks over the memorial I went to the other weekend where there was me and one other person wearing any sort of mask out of like 40 or 50 people in this small room, including many people who were older and are at higher risk of these things. So the public health advice has just largely disappeared. I'm glad to see Dr. Tam out with some recommendations. Like here in BC, 20% of people 18 or over have their second booster shot. Uh, only 60% have their first booster. Uh, it's under 50% in Alberta. There's just so much more to be done. Yeah, I, I think the chances that uh, absent a mass mandate, which is, I think, a, politicians are going to be very reluctant to bring in, that these warnings are necessarily going to translate into a lot of um, action behavior change on the part of the public. Yeah, Angus Reid had a poll out just this week saying something like 60% or more would support wearing ma or would wear masks or support a mask mandate if authorities recommended it. Uh, but authorities aren't recommending it. So even if some many experts are. Yeah, and like ob general observation is that uh, in Vancouver, masking is a couple percentage points of people. Uh, like it's pretty much dropped off like 
my sense of the general vibes out there, which, you know, take that for what you will, is that there's not a lot of appetite to necessarily go back unless things get bad. So, I don't know. We'll see. But things are bad. Like, when you look at the case, we don't have good case data, but the death data nationally is that 2022, the first half of 2022 was worse than 2020 and 2021. And cases are rising in many different ways. And these other two, influenza and RSV, are bad viruses as well, which conveniently are also blocked by masks and good hygiene. So yeah, well, I okay, f- fair point of the day. But like, the point is like the typical person does not perceive that as the actual like on the ground reality. That's just it, right? I think people care, but they don't think they have to right now. So we're reminding you once again, wash your hands, wear your mask, get vaccinated. Stay home if you like, can't have to, and get vaccinated. Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Those numbers are actually like shockingly low for the the boosters. It's like, why wouldn't you get it? Like it. Uh, being sick with COVID sucks. Um, if you can make it mild or not get it at all, like it is definitely worth it. Especially for something that's like such a low level of inconvenience. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.